Christina Searles, the marketing manager here at Fringe Arts, and this is Happy Hour on the Fringe, where we pour one up and chat with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. Today, we have a very special podcast episode featuring a conversation between Nick Stuccio, the president and producing director at Fringe Arts, and world-renowned composer and director, Heiner Goebbels. Heiner Goebbels is a Frankfurt-based composer and director. Not easily confined to one strictly defined artistic category, his work deconstructs the conventions of opera, theater, and concert music. This year, two of his works, Stifter's Dinga and Songs of Wars I Have Seen, will be featured in the opening week of our Fringe Festival. Enjoy! Welcome, Heinrich Goebbels. Thank you for doing this conversation. Um, we're very excited to have you here. I'm enormously excited. I told you yesterday at dinner I've been um, anticipating having you in Philadelphia for like 17 years since I first saw your work. I was much um, younger then. We both were much younger then. <laughs> you still look fantastic. Um, can you just start by talking about your background a little bit, your training, your education, etc.? Oh, my God. This takes a long time. Well... I mean, maybe to reduce it to the most, uh, what you never know, what is the most essential thing. I mean, I grew up in a very musical family, and um, but I also ended up after school in a political context, lived in a squat house uh, together mm. with uh, other members of the um, undogmatic movement in Frankfurt, Joschka Fischer and things like this, people like that. And um, I studied sociology because I thought this is the best, better way to be prepared for reality. And it took me a couple of years until I found uh, that the separation between my musical interests and my social and political interests were um, not necessary. That it's possible to think of a music which can play a role and which can react, which can be aware of what's going on around and not just a pri- being a private issue, which I thought when I was young. Um, so I founded um, a group called so-called Left Radical Brass Band. Hmm. And we joined a lot of demonstrations and teach-ins and political meetings uh, with brass instruments. Hmm. And um, I started a duo with a saxophone player, Alfred Hart, uh, improvising on the music of Hans Eisler. Um, a few years later, we founded a sort of experimental art rock crew group called uh, Cassiber. And at the same time, I earned my money with composing for theater. And but again, there were two different separation, different um, topics, different areas in which I was working. The area of my own music with Casiba, with mm-hmm. the duo, with the brass band, mm-hmm. and the area of theater composing for other directors. And it was not until the middle of the eighties when I was able to think that more together um, with radio works, which I created for broadcasting stations, mostly with texts by German author Heiner Müller. And um, I also started to compose for ensembles, Ensemble Moderne and other groups. And finally, it was 
until the beginning of the 90s, when I was already in my 40s, uh, when I dared to stage myself for theatre. Um, until then, I was mostly busy in the uh, development of an acoustic space, mm. acoustic stage. Mm. But now I combine that with uh, with uh, visual staging and real house, real theatre houses. Mm. And I did um, a couple of still, for me, very important plays in the 90s, like Hubert de Bagmont Désastreux with African musicians and did Black on White with Ensemble Modern, Isla Matria with Ensemble Modern. I did Max Black with a French actor, André Wilms. And most of these plays are still um, on stage. These, just, are, these are plays, not radio plays. No, these were real plays. These were music theater plays then. Oh. And Max Black is still on stage in Moscow oh. with a Russian wow. uh, actor right now. Isla Material we had a few days ago in Frankfurt, oh. wow. 20 years after its first oh. show. So I tried to keep my works alive for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You you were um, a collaborator, collaborator as a composer. Right? You were being hired to, to compose in for the, theater the, works. In the 70s and 80s, yes. I see. And at some point you decided, well, I want to lead a project. I want... You made a transition from composer to director. Yes. And uh, my experience as a supporting composer was very important for, for what I did on stage because I had no other starting point than to say, I don't want to do what I don't like. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do what I have seen already. And that was the only um, challenge and um, um, I had to myself. And I, I obviously did pretty well in my mm -hmm. first pieces, which were quite successful. Black on White is a piece from 1996. We still perform it uh, with 20 musicians. and um, But the starting point was actually to do something which avoids all the basic assumptions which are connected with a certain way of theatricality, of presence, of expressivity, which I never was so keen for. Mm -hmm. Meaning what? That the conventional way of making theater was, we talked about this a little bit yesterday when you write together, about there was too much leading the audience as opposed to giving them space to make their own, uh, fuel their own imagination. Yeah. Exactly. That's what you saw that same that yeah. same landscape. And uh, I mean, I in the, my first production, I did pretty much um, intuitively, but uh, looking at them right now, I discover that there's more and more an element which I call the aesthetics of absence, hmm. um, by avoiding a center, by avoiding showing the expected things, by avoiding to have a one topic have one continuous narration by all avoiding these things which uh, define theater so hmm. worldwide. Right, right. Interesting. Heiner, you were um, a professor for quite a few years, um, a fantastic tenure, um, at the Applied Theater Institute, the, the Institute for Applied Theater Studies in Gießen. Can you talk about that? It's an interesting place. I read about yeah. it. Yeah, uh, it was founded actually already in the early 80s. I, I entered it in 1999, so nearly 20 years ago, and I just finished uh, the chair because um, because I'm sort of retired officially. Mm. <laughs> and um, But I was a managing director for a very long time and, and built it up and with another um, 
master program and uh, with another professorship and and uh, with an earlier possibility for the students to show their uh, practical uh, work, their artistic projects already during the studies outside of the institute. Um, the characteristics of this institute is that it is um, on a sort of a balanced level. It is um, um, a university with a high theoretical standard and with a really scientific um, approach and like a theater studies approach theoretically. But at the same time, it's sort of an art school which um, considers the artistic practice on a daily level as important as the theoretical research. And it's one of the rare institutes, I must say, uh, to my knowledge, worldwide, who finds that balance. Hmm. And it's, it's, an, um, it's a coexistence of two, two institutions, actually, within our little institute of a university. Hmm. It was really a lucky, lucky foundation in 1982. And we have a lot of... Um, younger and not so young anymore um, alumni who became world famous uh, performing artists mm -hmm. like uh, René Polish or like Rimini Protocol, Gobscourt, Shishi Pop, a lot oh, yeah. of other performance groups. They all came already, some of them before I was there, mm -hmm. they came from our institute. And this is not an, this is not accidental. It has to do with the structure of the institute, mm -hmm. and it's not depend doesn't depend only on on the quality of the of the teachers. It, it depends on the quality of the of the structure, which um, gives the option and um, to reflect on contemporary tendencies of performing arts, mm. and at the same time in a dialogue with artistic practice and research on a daily level. Well, and it's not just, it's an art school, but not just teaching arts. The other curriculum, science, math, these are... It's, it's, a, normal, it's a normal university. We are wow. completely a strange unit in mm -hmm. a university. Mm -hmm. And you got, did you, this was a great platform for you, but you got to still have your practice as a director, a composer at the same I time. I reduced it very much while I was a mm. teacher, yeah. while I was a professor. I did usually only one production every two years, and I did it only in the summer break. Yeah. So I tried not to be in conflict with my teaching um, task. Mm -hmm. um, I was there week on a weekly basis, two, right. three, four days every week. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there was only one period from 2012 to 2014 when I was artistic director of Festival Rotriennale, in Germany, when I reduced my my task to half of the of the hours. That's great. But I still was teaching every week. Wow, that's great. You mentioned Ruhr Triennale, where you were the artistic director from 2012 to 2014. I've been dying while you're in town to ask you about it. It's a very preeminent, probably one one of the top venues of contemporary performance in the world. So as a programmer. I'm very curious about your philosophy. Um, how did you go about programming it? What was your what was your mandate? What was your um, and, and how did you respond to it? And how did you make your decisions on on what to program? I must say I was very lucky. 
I mean, generally, I'm quite lucky in my life. Um, I was very lucky with being appointed. You can't apply for this. You jump, some, somebody calls you and you say yes very quickly. But because I think it's one of the most um, luxurious and, f and free festivals for performing arts, I could do what I want. I had a, a very serious budget for the, every of these three years. And I made myself a very quick decision that in opposite to the former um, artistic directors, uh, I would, would not choose a theme because uh, those themes, either you can't show what you really want to show because it's you just saw it and you like it, but it doesn't fit to the theme, or you make it, you make it fit, which is awkward, or you also somehow you um, reduce the perspective of the audience to a piece of art. So I said my first thing was that I was not doing any theme. I would just show good art. Uh, second decision was that I didn't want to show any theater, which has to do with the German landscape. We have um, um, we have eighty eight zero opera houses in Germany. We have around 200 state theaters, which with an enormous repertoire in every bigger city. So I said, I'm not showing any things which can be part of the repertoire of those institutional art forms. And I'm only producing things which would never show the light of the day in another, in another institution. So I produced mm. uh, three operas of which I think Uh, which haven't been showed more than once or twice ever, uh, which was Europe Rust by John Cage. Mm -hmm. It was The Delusion of the Fury by Harry Parch. And it was The Materi by Louis Andreessen. Mm -hmm. And I invited specially artists who are not directors in, a, in the first place, but who have a different point of view to to uh, contemporary arts, like Romeo Castellucci, who produced three three shows for me. Um, a couple of interesting choreographers, like Boris Schamatz, Lemi Ponifazio, Anteresa de Kersmarkel, Jérôme Bell, and, and I also put a lot of visual arts there, like uh, Ryochi Ikeda, yeah. Douglas Gordon, yeah. um, Michal Rovner. Uh, Gregor Schneider, uh, huge installations, which um, for me were very important point of views from which you can see um, the performing arts in a different angle. For example, I opened my festival with with an exhibition which was called Twelve Rooms, curated by two um, exceptional curators mm. uh, of New York and London, and they they produced twelve um, rooms of live performing arts um, by Marina Abramovic, uh, John Jonas, Xavier Leroy, and, uh, and a high number of uh, fantastic artists. Uh, I, I'm, um, I'm running the numbers in my head. Uh, you said you had big budgets. Boy, all those artists in one or two festivals is a, it's an extraordinary lineup. Costs a lot of money. That's, that's fantastic. I just love the fact that, that your country embraces culture on that, that scale. And with all freedom. I mean, I, It's I, totally had, a, I had a political board wow. with ministers and, um, and I presented all my, uh, my, my ideas to the, to the board and I had um, no conflicts so wow. whatsoever. What, what, about, what about audience? It was very interesting because a lot of people said, 
if you refuse to show what people know already, because that's what was my that was my line. I said I'm not showing something you know already. Mm -hmm. Come to the festival and you see something you you might not be able to describe what it was. And um, people warned me, but until then it was the best visited festival of the whole Triennale. Wow. People came very internationally from New York, from other European countries, from China, from Japan. It was really a fantastic echo. And of course, underneath, when I look back to this program, then um, you can discover moments of this aesthetics of absence in a lot of elements of the program. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, very decentralized pieces which are based on like like chorus of people, like people like Lemi Ponifazio or um, Romeo Castellucci or Boris Schamatz. They work with bigger groups of dancers, performers and actors. Mm -hmm. And it's not based on one big name, one big um, protagonist. And I like this decentralization because it had to do with the decentralization of the area as well. Rua Triennale is an area which has no real center, but 50, 50 cities which had a former importance in steel and coal mining. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they restored a histori historical uh, industrial uh, venues for culture in a very respectful and beautiful way. Yeah. And those were my venues. That's great. That's great. I just I want to bounce over to this idea of the aesthetics of absence, um, theater of absence. You say it's interesting to hear you talk about your early beginnings that were political. It sounds like you were a, a, as a young man you were very interested in the political nature of of art. But but you talk about your work with without you say it has no meaning. Don't look for a meaning. Is that related to this idea of of absence? I I would never say don't look for a meaning. It's the opposite. Uh, the op the audience is invited to look for a meaning. Mm. They do that all the time. Mm -hmm. The problem is that in, if I define the meaning, then the audience can only follow right. and they can say, oh, yes, he's right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not interested. I'm interested in a, in a more emancipatorical um, idea of, of uh, an audience which is enabled and empowered to make sense of what they see and what mm -hmm. they hear. And um, and there's also, it's very helpful if you don't have um, solistic protagonists, which are basically a strategy where the audience are mirror themselves. They're, they're mirroring themselves or they identify with them. Right. And um, this is not a very emancipatory way of of making an experience which might have something to do with yourself. Right. I think um, that's why I'm more interested in this sort of landscape of bodies, a landscape of performers, right. which gives you the freedom as an audience, gives you the freedom to focus where you are interested, what you are interested in. It's interesting. It reminds me of Jérôme Bell, who, who you've programmed and know very much about his theories about the democratization exactly. of, of, of art, which I love. Um, but so in your work, who should be on stage? You do have 
artists with virtuosity that appear on stage and we buy a ticket, we see them. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes I have, like in Stiftersdinger, there's nobody on stage. Yeah. Um, or there's 100 sheep. Right. Like in the fourth act mm -hmm. of the opera by Louis Andriessen. Um, yes, but even the virtuosity, I try also to find moments where the musicians can't rely on the virtuos virtuosity. Right. Just this morning, I had a wonderful rehearsal with the musicians from the two orchestras with which we do Songs of Wars. And they were forced to speak um, while they play and um, to speak text by Gottfried Stein. And this is something they have never done before, of course. So there is a, always this moment of innocence or these moments of uh, insecurity, fragility, which I'm looking for on stage. And if it happens on stage, the audience also not is noticing it. Right, right. You, you, you mentioned that, and I, and I love that idea. And that's clear. After hearing you say that, and then watching some of the video of songs of Wars, I, I see that fragility, and it's, and it's great. Also looking back at Hashiragaki, which is a work um, you made in 2002 or three um, that also used Gertrude Stein text. And there, the actors, they were actors, and they were delivering Stein's text with, with meaning. Um, I, I, I'm curious about those are very two different perspectives on the same use of the text. Now, am I, I, am I misreading to, it? I have to correct you. Please. Um, there were three ladies on stage mm -hmm. who were singing the Beach Boy songs <laughs> and speaking the, speaking the Gertrude Stein text. Yeah. One was a Japanese musician who's, um, who's a virtuoso in traditional Japanese instruments. Second one was a Canadian pianist um, who became only an actress uh, after doing a production with me a few years before Hashirigaki. Oh. She was just a, she was a pianist. And the third one, she was the most an actress, but rather a dancer and performer and singer. Mm. Um, so it was again, there was no routine in what they were doing. Mm. And this is probably that's what I'm trying to look for is to avoid any routine in, right. in, in doing what is expected from you mm -hmm. to do. Got it, got it. Can we talk about some of the works? I'm so excited to have Stift as Dinga here. Many of your works have had long lives, which is a real testament to your, to your work, Heiner. Even seeing uh, a little bit of Hashiragaki again, I thought it was, I had the same feeling I, I, when I saw it 16, 17 years ago. But, can, but Stiftus is really quite an extraordinary piece. It, it's still uh, touring widely. It's uh, over 10 years old or so. I'm curious about a couple of things. Now, looking back on that work or either other works that you've made um, a while ago, how, how do you view them now? Have they changed for you? No, but the thing, no, they haven't changed much. They're pretty precise, mm -hmm. though they were developed over a long period of time in workshops and improvisations. Um, they haven't changed much, but I see them, I see nearly all the performances, huh. like black on white. In We had nearly 100 performances in, in 20 years. I saw probably in... 85% of them, but with a long distance. I mean, we did it last year, then we did it two years before that, and sometimes we perform it once a year, twice a year. There's also no routine in seeing it. And since I don't produce the 
defined statement or a meaning, but I produce statements or I produce uh, tensions between, for example, what we see and what we hear. These tensions, they work differently in different spaces. Mm. They work differently for in front of different audiences. And um, so I can even see them in a different way, though I have made them myself. It's rather um, surprising sometimes when I think, hmm, I, don't re- I can't recall how I ever did that. Huh. I guess it's true. You, you, you see the works through the, through the eyes of the audience yes. in, each, in each point. Can, and I'm just curious. I have to ask this question about American audiences. Your, your work has been here en- enough. Um, how do you think... Enough? Well, it's not the first en- time never in Philadelphia. I, I know, which is, which is a travesty. Um, yeah, your work, we should see your work more in this country. But uh, my, my question is, how do you think your work lands with, with us here in the U.S.? I mean, you'll, you'll know in September when you're back... And, and we're going to love it, by the way. But um, in New York and other places that you've been, how, do, do you see a difference in, in, our, in our view of contemporary performance? Um, no, actually, I had a wonderful response uh, since the, I mean, one of my first um, things were concert with Casiba in the kitchen and then Man in the Elevator in the kitchen mm-hmm. in 1989. And, and then um, a lot of, most of my plays have been presented in New York since the end of the 90s. Uh, no, I can't see a difference, but I think the difference is not between an urban population and another urban population, wherever it is. The difference is between land and uh, between country and city. And, right. And, um, of course, we've never shown here anything on the countryside because it's uh, there's the money is missing or the interest right. is missing, the spaces are missing. And that would make the real difference, right? But you, but your work has been in this, for instance, the German countryside or outside of the big cities. Your work, not really, mm. not really. Mm. But I must say, my work is quite accessible. Yeah, and I prefer, I prefer that my work is shown in a place where people don't know me, um, because only then I can tell if the work works. Right, because. If I perform it uh, in Frankfurt, then everybody has seen 10 pieces already. And then they say, oh, yes, this it's nice. But yeah, last time you had so many pianos. Why don't you have so many pianos anymore? Mm. Things like this. Very strange right. uh, uh, preoccupations yeah. for the... Um, so I like the the unprepared and the un, un preoccupied um, but curious view I like that the most, and mm. I have it maybe when I come the first time to Korea or to Taiwan. We had a show two years ago, and it was amazing response. And then I can only then I know okay, this work is somehow uh, universal, and it touches people uh, no matter where they're from, but in a, of course in a very different way. Right, it, there's not one way that mm-hmm. somebody can be touched by my works. I, I would like you to talk more about stiffness, <laughs> Dinga, how you created it, how it came to life. But but um, I, I think it was created, what, 10 years ago. Um, now I, I see it because the environmental issues in our country, maybe in our world, are more acute. I look at it more as a, and this is my question to you, um, as a piece of, uh, about the situation with the global climate. Do, do you, that wasn't your intention, though. Stifted no. has a, was kind of an early environmentalist, was he not? Um, 
I think the problem is generally that um, you can't you can't really reach an audience with an with um, with an intention because as soon as they notice your intention, um, you kill you kill the point. So um, I think that's true for politics. It's even true for humor and erotics. Um, as soon as you, as you do as if you could uh, recreate that on stage all the time, I think you're already misled. Mm. Um, for my own practice, I must say that most of the political or um, social coincidences, they came unintentionally. Like uh, when we did Stifters Dingham, our only only starting point was experimental. We said, let's try to do a piece without anybody, if this is possible. Um, maybe for an hour or something like this. And I, I discussed this with the set and light designer with whom I worked since 20 years, Klaus Grünberg. And we started with one pool and we started with two pianos. And then after a few months, we had three pools and five pianos. And then there come some voices. And then you were looking and looking at the water and the rain and the fog and the ice. And then all of a sudden, the topics, they came by themselves right. while we were watching it. And um, now this piece, as you correctly uh, say, is piece very much considered as a as an ecological and also ethnological piece with... Um, with a focus on 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 these topics, but it was never meant to be, mm. and mm. I think this that's why this piece has a chance because you you notice that it's happening by itself and it's not happening by the intention of our political correct understanding. Mm. You, you you're mentioned your process. I've read a little bit about how you make work, but it is very much. Um, you have source. You gather some source ideas, and you have no destination in mind. Can yes, you talk exactly. about that? It's very interesting. No, it's very, it's very, it's very clear. I have no vision of a piece. <laughs> I have a question to start with, or I have an interest. I share this with my collaborators and with the performers, and I always, I can really I can um, promise, I always end up with with more than what I expected. Because I don't have a fixed, fixed point I want to reach, and I think the way I work is uh, makes makes uh, it's much more uh, a more happy process. Because if you have a, a fixed vision, you will never reach it. You don't have enough money, and you don't have enough time. The performers are unable to to get there, and things like this. I always work the other way around, and I always reach more than all of us have expected. Right. So, so the work happens in the editing, right? That's, that's my humble observation, mm -hmm. that, that the great artists um, mm -hmm. are the best editors. And mm -hmm. you certainly are a fantastic editor, Heiner. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was our conversation with Heiner Goebbels. Thanks for listening. To find out more about this year's Fringe Festival, Sifters Dinga, and Songs of Wars I Have Seen, visit FringeArts.com. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Heiner Goebbels, ECM Records, and RER Megacore.